Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see this beautiful morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Josh. I'm the pastor of Community Life, and it's my privilege to be able to continue in on our series looking at the Apostles' Creed. Now, we're getting to the end of the Apostles' Creed where we have transitioned from truths about God to truths about ourselves and about the church, like the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, and today, the forgiveness of sins. And we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. If you could grab your worship guide and you could turn it on the back, you'll see the scripture is written on the top. And I'm actually going to ask you to interact with that uh, throughout the morning. So if you could grab a pen as well, we'd really appreciate that. I think it'll help you uh, follow along and help you grab, grasp some things that the scripture is trying to teach us. Um, we're going to look at the God's forgiveness of our sins, but also how that frees us and implicates us to forgive others, even those who have deeply, deeply hurt us. So the big idea, big idea today is this, fellowship with God requires the forgiveness of sins. All right, well, let's start out looking at verse 5. <clears throat> this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You know, throughout John's writing, which include 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, as well as the Gospel of John, John continually refers to God as light. John 1 says, in him, meaning Jesus, was life and the life was the light of of men. And in John 8, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. See, in our culture, it's hard for us to understand the significance of God as light. Uh, you know, uh, it'll this evening get dark about 4.45, and then it'll be dark until the next morning about 7. And if any time I want light, I flick on a light switch and light comes on. Or if I want to be in a place as bright as day, I can go to Target, I can go to the mall, and it is as bright as day. Well, for most people living today, as well as all people throughout history, that was not the case. Apart from possibly a campfire or a candle, when the sun went down, it meant darkness. And darkness could mean danger. I mean, you've probably been camping and heard the monsters just outside the ring of your campfire <laughs> walking around. They're just like squirrels and stuff, but it makes us afraid. Uh, imagine uh, many years ago, if that was the case where there's marauders or there's actual animals that could attack you. Well, darkness also meant boredom. I mean, what would you do for 14 hours in darkness without your phone, right? you would be so bored. You would have nothing to do. Darkness also meant anxiety, fear, and, and being cold. Well, John describes God as light. And what he is saying is God is our safety. God gives us purpose. He gives us protection. He also gives us mental light, wisdom, and clarity and truth. What scripture is saying is that there is no substitute for the presence of God. God is the source of life, 
the source of purpose, of peace, of truth, of goodness, of beauty, and all things that are good. They all come from God, the Father of lights, as Scripture talks to them as. When John says that God is light, he is saying that God is who we want to be with, the one we want to know, and the presence we long to experience. And it is this basis that John gives us three tests, three if we say statements in this passage so that we can assess if we are living in the light or in the dark. So if you could grab your bulletin, we will start with the first if we say statement. Look at me at verse six and circle right in the beginning of the verse, if we say. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the first point we see is that we have fellowship with God when we walk in the light. Now, this term fellowship, it's a very churchy word. I doubt you've had a good business meeting or a good tennis match and said, what great fellowship we have had, right? People will look at you uh, like you just came from church, right? Um, But fellowship is a really important concept. It comes from the Greek. Uh, The New Testament is written in Greek. It's the word koinonia. Maybe you've heard this before, which means together or in common. It's that which we share in common or have together, and it expresses a two-sided relationship. And the concept of fellowship is unique in the New Testament. See, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel had a bloodline and a history and a land that they shared in common. Well, in the New Testament, uh, or, or, we have a fellowship with one another first through spiritual commonality, through sharing a spiritual family and a spiritual father. See, we have fellowship or something in common with God. That's what this verse says. Well, it begs the question, what could we, weak, broken people, have in common with God Almighty? Well, we can have a relationship with his son in common. You see, we have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. God is light, and Christ is the light of the world. Through faith, we have a relationship with Christ, which means we have fellowship with God if and when we walk in the light. In these verses, we are given two tests to test ourselves to see if we have fellowship with God. The first test is the test of fellowship with others. Now, this is a surprising to me because I would think that fellowship with God is about me and God, right? A private and personal relationship with God. But the first test we see here for walking in the light of God is based on our relationship with others. Verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what? We have fellowship with one another. That means our relationship with God is personal, 
but it's not private. Because a relationship with the father is a relationship with the family. Many of you went and visited family for Thanksgiving, and maybe there was an empty chair where one sibling would not be in the same room with another sibling. Or maybe you went to grandma's house or your mom's house, and there's a family member you didn't, you avoided when he came in the kitchen, you went in the living room. When you came in the kitchen, he went in the living room. Because there's tension, there's not fellowship together. Well, having that situation with, with your sibling, you know who that hurts the most? Your parent. Your parent experiences this ruptured relationship even more acutely than you may. You see, last week, Pastor Joe talked about the communion of saints, the church being adopted into the family of God, and that means we have a relationship with other adopted children. So we have fellowship with God, we walk in the light, and we have fellowship with others. So test yourself. How is your relationship with your spiritual family? Do you have fellowship with other believers? Are you part of a caring community? Are you in a life group? If you are not in a life group, you will see in your bulletin a number and a way to get connected into a life group. There's a number to call or text or an email. If you want to get in a life group, we will personally connect you. Because in a room this size, that's where fellowship really takes place. All right, well, the second test we see for, for uh, fellowship with God is the test of accepted sin. Uh, last year, uh, my wife Deborah and I hired a man to come and install some bright lights in our basement. You know, we had some really dim, dingy lights and we wanted to see our basement better. So he installed the lights and said, hey, Josh, come on down, let me show you. So I went down, flicked on the lights and my first response was, man, I gotta clean this basement because it's filthy. It's easy to have our filth hidden in the darkness, but when the light comes, it forces us to come to grips with reality. Is there a dark corner of the basement of your heart where you are hiding a sin? Is there a sin in your life that you have surrendered to? Have you stopped fighting it and you think I'm just gonna live with it? Well, you can't just have a little bit of cancer and just hopefully it just stays there. No, sin like cancer grows. That's how it was designed. That's its reality. And just as uh, mold can't grow in the light, neither can sin grow when it is in the light of God. So we have fellowship with God when we walk in the light. Well, let's look at the second if we say statement, starting in verse eight. If we say, if you wanna circle that second if we say statement, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, we have fellowship with God when we say, I have sin. 
See, the, uh, John gives us two uh, categories, two more tests to see if we walk in the light, if we have fellowship with God. The first is if we are in the group that say, I have no sin. Or if we're in the group that say, I, I, I have sin. See, in our culture today, it's common to view sin as an outdated religious relic. Uh, today, sin has been substituted for words like uh, misunderstanding or disagreement or mistake, all of which puts the blame not on an act, but on unfortunate circumstances. In our culture, sin seems too uncomfortable of a term. And personally, I even find myself trying to get the S word out in talking with people. But there are dire consequences for losing the concept of sin, both for an individual and a culture. See, we see that our public discourse has become more and more polarized. People view those who they disagree with as evil or wicked or stupid rather than as someone with whom they simply disagree. And many cultural commentators from the right and the left note that we have switched religious ideas and political ideas where politics has become the religion of our culture. And we have become afraid to call out sin, but happy to call our opponents evil and our allies good, no matter what they do morally. See, without the concept of sin, moral right and wrong is based on what, on who someone associates with rather than what they do. And that's a big problem. Have you guys seen this or is this just me? See, the gospel is the solution to this problem. See, the Bible says that we all sin and that no one is perfect. God alone is perfect. And we need other people, even people we disagree with, in order to better understand what is right, especially in the arena of politics. See, if you are a Christian, you may be utterly convinced of your political position, and that's fine. But as a Christian, you also must believe that you are a sinner and that you are regularly wrong. It's what the Bible calls humility. See, as in verse eight, those who say they have no sin, that they are never wrong, deceive themselves. See, if we look at our lives, our businesses, our families, our politics, our money, or any other arena of life and say, I have no sin. There's nothing in me that needs to change to be more like Christ than the Bible says that we are self-deceived. See, followers of Jesus must hold tightly to the truth of God's word and hold loosely to the belief that you or that I have it all figured out. You see, the fix to our polarization is an uprising of humble followers of Jesus. And that's the hope for our nation, and that's the hope for every one of our hearts and our families. Those who say, I have no sin, 
are self-deceived. But there are a second group. Look again at verse eight and nine. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christians, followers of Jesus, must constantly be confessing our sins before God because confession is a vital part of any relationship. How much more with God? I mean, think about it. I'll talk to the fellas. How good would your marriage be if you never said, my fault? Like, like I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about the first three weeks. Like it would be a train wreck after that, much less decades. Every relationship that we have requires saying, I have sin, especially our relationship with God. You see, sometimes Christians think of the idea of confession that we see in verse nine as the Roman Catholic sacrament of penance. But the Bible teaches that confession of sin should be a continual pattern in every Christian's life, not merely something you do in a confessional booth to a priest or to a pastor even. See, when a person receives Christ, when they get saved, as we call it, they have what the Bible calls belief through faith, where they believe that the work done on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty of sin. A necessary part of belief through faith is confessing that we are guilty of sin and in need of a sinner. Belief through faith changes our status from an enemy of God to a child of God. After you are saved, you never need to get resaved to experience forgiveness. Christ has already forgiven you for all the sins you will ever commit, all the sins you have committed, and all the sins you will commit today. Your status before God is secure. Nonetheless, confession must be a regular part of the Christian life because it restores our relationship to God. See, God is perfect, and he has declared us, his children, innocent before him. And because he is perfect, there is no sin in him. He doesn't get annoyed with us. He doesn't just change his mind. His love for us is secure. But when we sin, our hearts, we begin to move away from God. We begin to, our relationship develops a gap because we must have a confession of saying, I have sinned, just like every relationship. So when we confess with our mouths that we have sinned, what that does is God is Father Almighty. He sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross. He loves us and he sent his Holy Spirit to draw our hearts back to him. So when we confess before God, we are saying, I'm sorry, and it is God drawing us back to where he's always been. You see, adoption is a major theme in scripture, and it's a major practice for us here at CVC. And we would encourage you to consider adoption. 
Three of our pastor's families have adopted. See, when a child is adopted, the parents commit to this child for the rest of that child's life. When the child disobeys, there may be distance in the relationship of the adopted child and the parent, but it does not mean that that son or that daughter is any less a son or a daughter. No, when a child sins against his parent, his status is not at risk, but the health of the relationship and intimacy with his parent is impacted. See, verse 9 says that God forgives us and cleanses us from unrighteousness. So if you feel a separation between your heart and God's, you have moved. God is still there calling you back to him. And what we must do is confess to the Lord, we've strayed, we've walked away, forgive us, restore us back. I need your help. And he is faithful, he's just, and he will do it. See, we have fellowship with God when we say, I have sin. All right, well, let's look at the final if we statement, if we say statement in verse 10. Verse 10 says this, if we say, circle that last, if we say in our text, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So that third principle we see is we have fellowship with God when we ask forgiveness. You know, maybe you are here today and have never asked for forgiveness from God. If you have never in your mouth, in your heart said, God, forgive me of my sin. I am a sinner in need of a savior. Then you have not been forgiven of your sins. Then you are saying, in effect, I have no sin. But God says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you never ask God for forgiveness, then you are saying that God is spreading a false rumor about you and that God is lying about you by saying you have sin. But here's some good news. The only relationship that will never require your forgiveness is a relationship with God. And if you have never put your, relation, your faith in Jesus by confessing your sins and trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross to pay for those sins, you need to do that today. See, uh, in the morning before the 8.15, myself and another other, a, a number of other pastors gathered to pray. And this morning, we specifically prayed for three people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ through the services today. And I sincerely believe that will happen. Is that someone in this room who needs for the first time to receive forgiveness from God? Who is that here who has never asked God to forgive them of their sins? Who does not have a relationship with God? Well, today is the day. He calls out to you and says, forgiveness is here. It is offered to you freely. Confess and say, I have sinned. I need a savior. And he is faithful and just. He will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 
And if you do that this morning, we want to help you grow in your new life in Christ. Write that on your card so that we can walk with you through your next steps. All right, well, let's review what we've learned. Fellowship with God requires, requires forgiveness. We see in 6 and 7, we have fellowship with God when we walk in the light. When we walk in the light, when we have fellowship with others and reject hidden sin. Verse 8 and 9 tell us we have fellowship with God when we say, I have sin. And we must confess our sins to God. And then verse 10 says, we have fellowship with God when we ask for forgiveness from him. All right. For the rest of our time this morning, I want to get into your business a little bit, okay? You know, during my study this week, verse 7 really struck out to me, and I've been chewing on it ever since. Verse 7 says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That first consequence of fellowship with God is fellowship with one another. This fellowship always, always requires forgiveness. See, Jesus took the payment of our wrongs. Jesus was perfect. He had no sin to pay for, but he took the payment, the consequence of our sin, and he put it upon himself on the cross so that we could be forgiven. He willingly took our punishment so that we can be reconciled to God. That's what forgiveness is. It's taking on to yourself the consequences for someone else's wrong. And we all collectively say, well, that's not fair. That's exactly right. See, God will never need your forgiveness, but he has offered it to you because he loves you. And as he has forgiven us, he asks us to forgive each other. And I know every one of us in this room needs to either be forgiven by someone or to offer forgiveness to someone. Because fellowship with God requires forgiveness, God both forgiving us and us forgiving each other. So in a moment, I'm going to give you five minutes. I'm going to take your worship guide. At the bottom, you'll see Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. It says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And you'll see below that there are two boxes that say, today I commit before God to forgive. There's a space to put a name, a family member, an ex-boyfriend, an ex-spouse, an organization, a boss, a sibling, a parent, a child. Anyone who God is telling you this morning, you have yet to forgive them for a terrible thing they have done to you. And below that, maybe today, you need to commit before God to seek forgiveness from someone. Maybe there's something that you know you shouldn't have done, you did it, and you're too ashamed to confess it and to ask for forgiveness. Maybe that's the step you need to take this morning. And to be clear, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is not condoning what they did. It is not forgetting what they did, if that was even possible. And it's not based on the action of others. 
Forgiveness is releasing that person of the spiritual payment they owe you but can never pay you back. So I'm going to give you five minutes to meditate on that verse and to go to God asking, God, who is it that you want me to forgive? And God, who is it that I need to seek forgiveness from? And, and if you are committing to that today, I don't want to, not everyone's going to be able to put anything in these boxes. So if you're not ready, do not do that. But if you want to say, you know, I'm going to put a stake in the ground, the ancient Israelites would put a pile of rocks to remind themselves of God's faithfulness. If you're ready to do that this morning, then you write that person or that organization's name in the blank. And you say, today on, I give what they owe me and they could never pay, I release it to God. So let's spend some time in prayer. You know, forgiveness is extraordinarily costly. And it's extremely painful. It, uh, you know, many psychologists would describe it as a, a form of death. And Jesus is our model for forgiveness. His forgiveness was extraordinarily costly to the point of his own death. But on the third day, rose again. And we can reap the benefits of his resurrection. You see, Romans 6, 4 says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In forgiveness, God offers you his light so that we become people who walk new. We're changed and we get that strange quality where people see us and they say, I, I, I don't know how to describe her. But what I, all I can say is she is, she's light. That's what Christ offers us in his forgiveness when we forgive others. And that is my hope and prayer for you, that you will forgive as Christ has forgiven you and that you will walk in newness of life. So let's stand together and sing about that newness of life.